This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. This is the Project Up and Podcast presented by Onyx Hunt. this episode of the show we're talking forestry and birds with researcher dj mcneil thanks for tuning in to episode number 137 Project Upland Podcast is presented by Onyx Hunt, creators of the most comprehensive digital mapping system for hunters. Use the promo code PUP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. And by Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food. If you want to get the most out of your dog, you need nutrition that holds nothing back. To help unleash your dog's maximum potential, check out the new Yukonuba Premium Performance lineup at yukonubasportingdog.com. And by CZ USA, shotguns designed with the Upland Hunter in mind, from the Bob White and Sharptail side-by-sides, to the Upland Ultralight and Wing Shooter Elite over and unders, and of course, the soon-to-be-released Project Upland CZ USA crowdsource shotgun, which, rumor has it, I will have one in my hands next week. More to come on that very soon. Stay tuned. For now, head over to cz-usa.com to learn more. And by Garmin, makers of some of the best GPS tracking dog training e-collars available they've got wearables like my garmin phoenix watch they've got shooting tools like the garmin zero i've been using garmin products for years and they make a lot of my outdoor adventures a lot more fun enjoyable 
while also ensuring the safety of my bird dogs. I'm sure most of you are familiar with Garmin. You'll be hearing more about them on the podcast. To find out more about them, head over to Garmin.com. And by Sage and Breaker, makers of gun cleaning products that protect legacies. The legacy of your firearm, the legacy of the sport, and the legacy of passing both down to future generations. Sage and Breaker lives, breathes, and makes everything at the highest caliber possible. And they are proud to pass that caliber of craftsmanship on to you. Learn more at sageandbreaker.com. And finally, by Dakota 283 Kennels, unparalleled protection. And I want to let you know about a new offering from Dakota 283, which is Dakota Guard, an FDA and EPA approved antimicrobial additive that is included in small quantities during the production of their kennels, which results in a product that protects your pet's health and safety from an invisible world, proven highly effective against some very common strains of bacteria, up to 98% antimicrobial protection in your kennel long lasting and simply another way that dakota 283 is committed to keeping your bird dogs safe check it out and learn more at dakota283.com all right this week's winner of the podcast giveaway james m from texas sent me an email he's been listening to the podcast gaining some information and knowledge from our guests and james went out and bagged his first wild quail last hunting season Congrats to you, James. Project Up and T-Shirt headed your way very soon. Anybody listening could be next week's winner of the podcast giveaway. All you have to do is leave us a rating, leave us a review, subscribe to the podcast, share the podcast, send us some feedback or a guest suggestion. You can email me at nick.larson at northwoodscollective.com. All right, quick reminder about the giveaway from Dogtra on X, Project Upland from our episode last week. If you haven't heard that one yet, check it out. Listen through the end. Find the podcast post on our website, projectupland.com. Submit your answers, and you will be entered to win a Dogtra TNB dual unit, a one-year elite subscription from Onyx Hunt, and a Project Upland magazine subscription. Still a few days left to enter that giveaway. We're probably going to announce the winner on the next episode of the Project Upland podcast. Check that out at projectupland.com. All right, we're jumping into our conversation today. We have DJ McNeil, researcher on birds, forestry, also a first-time bird dog owner, lifelong outdoor enthusiast, bird hunter. We talk about a lot of his work based around birds using early successional habitat and how it relates to good forestry practices, along with DJ becoming the owner of his first bird dog, first season, first birds, all of that. We talk about it today. DJ was incredibly knowledge on a topic that is or should be of great importance to bird hunters as we are spending time in the habitat, paying attention, and working towards a sustainable future for the birds, the habitat, and the things that we all love. With that said, I'd like to welcome into the conversation and onto the Project Upland podcast, DJ McNeil. And we're rolling. DJ McNeil, welcome to the Project Upland podcast. Thanks for joining me today. Yes, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. So tell us, where are we speaking to you from today, DJ? Are you in the deep freeze? Uh, I don't think you would say I'm in a deep freeze. <laughs> um, so I'm calling uh, in from central Pennsylvania, in particular uh, State College, which is in uh, the aptly named Center County, Pennsylvania. Okay. And based on our conversation right before we turn the mic on, you are sitting at a balmy 20-some degrees at this moment. That is correct. We have plenty of snow, I'd say probably uh, just below the knee here in my yard. 
but it's it's not terribly cold. It's not melting. Yeah. But uh, it doesn't feel too bad going outside. Yeah, that's good. I am 20 degrees on the other side of zero uh, when I let the dogs out this morning. <laughs> Negative 21. And it, it did feel very cold this morning, but we're certainly somewhat used to it, especially now that we've been below zero for nearing a week now, which is kind of crazy. I mean, this has been... Uh, Quite a quite a deep freeze. I know a, a lot of regions in the country are experiencing the cold temps for sure. But the sun is shining and the wind is not blowing real hard, so I'm not complaining, DJ. <laughs> well, I, I I don't envy you. I'm a native Michigander, so okay. I'm familiar with the cold, and uh, uh, I think I will just keep my mouth shut about how cold it is here in Pennsylvania. <laughs> <laughs> what part of Michigan are you from? I am from southwestern Michigan. Uh, it's it's probably the least uh, photogenic part of the state. Uh, <laughs> I was born and raised in the Kalamazoo Battle Creek area. Okay. Yeah, I've not spent much time in that part of the state. I've been a few places in the northern part of the state, and I am always appreciative of the Northwoods beauty that kind of transcends from Minnesota to Wisconsin to Michigan. I love, yeah. love that part of the world for sure. Yeah, the UP, of course, is sort of the crown jewel of Michigan. Uh, I think many Michiganders would agree with that. Yeah. Uh, of course, I, I did my undergraduate work at Michigan State. So uh, for any U of M people uh, listening, I'm sorry to say I'm a Spartan through and through. <laughs> well, speaking of your undergraduate, why don't you bring us up to speed and introduce the audience a little bit to your background and some of the things that you're currently working on? Yeah, absolutely. So I am working on a variety of things right now, but most of my current work is examining how bird species, uh, a wide variety of bird species, respond to forest management across the eastern U.S. And I've worked fairly extensively in Minnesota, uh, Wisconsin, Michigan, uh, as well as through some of the Appalachian states, uh, New York, New Jersey, uh, very extensively in Pennsylvania, Maryland, uh, and a bit in West Virginia. So, yeah, most of my projects are exploring how, how species can benefit from and how we can uh, tweak timber management practices to most benefit forest bird populations like grouse and woodcock and uh, many non-game species that folks may or may not be familiar with, like wood thrushes and golden-winged warblers and things like that. Yeah, so definitely. So the the consistency there is really because you're traveling around to different places, looking at different species, different birds. But you are very interested in how forestry and timber management is affecting these bird species. That that's really the common thread here. Absolutely, yeah. In in fact, that is so much the common thread that uh, uh, we frequently deviate me and my uh, team to other organisms that aren't even birds. Uh, we've sure. worked fairly extensively, uh, for instance, on uh, bumblebees and other pollinators. We have an ongoing project in Minnesota uh, right now, partnering with uh, Indiana University of Pennsylvania on monarch butterflies. Yeah, you name it. Uh, the, the forest management and forestry component is really the, the main thread that connects all of this work. So I would say that most of my work is bird-focused, but, but sure. certainly not all of it. Well, the pollinators one is interesting because that, I guess you could say it's a buzzword, but it's a, it's an important topic, I think, in the conser <laughs> conservation world. And I think our friends at Pheasants Forever have done a great job of highlighting the prairie and the native grass landscapes and their association with 
pollinators. I hear less about it as pollinators relate to forests, except when I'm speaking to folks at the Rough Grouse Society, they've started to kind of enlighten me on some of those aspects. But could you give me the basics as to how pollinators relate to forests? Yeah, so it's kind of weird. We think of pollinators as being uh, organisms that we need in agricultural landscapes, which is absolutely true. That's where pollinators uh, provide what's known as an ecosystem service. They provide a service to us uh, in that they pollinate our crops and and facilitate uh, fruit set and things like that. But that's not where pollinators evolved. In fact, most of the eastern United States was historically a large forested landscape. Uh, And as such, the pollinators that we have uh, that frequently pollinate our crops in agricultural landscapes, they evolved in forested places. So these guys, uh, they might do just fine in a blueberry patch or a squash patch. These pollinators mostly evolved in forested landscapes. So as a result, this is where these pollinators are expected to have population strongholds. And there's quite a bit of research that shows that. However, common theme throughout our work is is restoring aspects of forest ecology that have been lost, like disturbances such as wildfire. And without those forces, pollinators, just like woodcock and grouse, suffer. So some of our really exciting ongoing work is looking at how forest management can benefit forest pollinators, given that forests are the places where these pollinators frequently evolve and where a lot of pollinators kind of want to be, does forest management help those pollinator populations, then uh, unsurprisingly, the answer is a resounding yes. When you manage the forest in a way that benefits bird species, that benefits really just wildlife in general, the pollinators come right along with it. It's all part of a, a broad, holistic consideration of the forest. Very cool. So I guess I'm going to back up a little bit, and just in case folks are wondering how we're diving straight into sort of forestry and pollinators and bird species. Um, DJ, you are a, you're an upland bird hunter, which we are going to get to a little bit later in our conversation. And the, <laughs> the connection that you and I made was via a mutual friend, uh, Kevin Shepard. He was a previous guest on the podcast. He is a forester for the American Bird Conservancy. And I don't know that how you guys got connected, but I assume it's through your work. Yeah. So uh, Kevin, of course, does a lot of work, uh, as you mentioned, through the Bird Conservancy managing uh, forests for a variety of wildlife species. A lot of Kevin's work is targeted at the golden-winged warbler, and uh, which, of course, is a non-game species, yeah. as well as game birds like the American woodcock and rough grouse. So Kevin's work through the Bird Conservancy it was very germane to the research I did for my dissertation, which involved uh, exploring and sampling habitat and birds from more than a thousand locations across the Great Lakes and uh, Central Appalachian Mountains. So a lot of my dissertation work, uh, which I did at Cornell in the Lab of Ornithology, uh, was directly uh, assessing the work that Kevin does. Uh, In particular, when Kevin uh, manages a site for young timber, does that site attract woodcock? Does that site attract non-game birds like golden-winged warblers and and chestnut-sided warblers and all these other songbirds? So that, that is how uh, Kevin and I got uh, connected, was uh, through his work on forestry and my research assessing uh, the impacts of forestry on birds. Yeah. And how is it that, because you, you mentioned your undergrad and some of your work, but I'm curious, where did, the, where did the inspiration or the spark come from for you to go into this field? Were you an outdoors 
oriented person your whole life and that kind of led you down this path? I mean, tell me how it came to be. Yeah, I've, I've always been an outdoorsman. Uh, I was raised uh, hunting, fishing, uh, and trapping. So I've always kind of had that affinity for the outdoors yeah. uh, recreationally. I was also, from a young age, likewise interested in non-consumptive outdoor recreation. So I was always uh, a bird watcher, which was, it, it always made deer hunting a lot more fun when you knew the birds. I uh, bet. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. So I, I have that kind of background uh, in outdoor recreation. So that drove me to explore options with wildlife research and understanding uh, what makes wildlife populations go up and down and how to conserve wildlife populations so that future generations can benefit from them like I did. Well, it didn't take me long uh, to become involved with research projects looking at the impacts of forestry on wildlife. And one thing I noticed very, very early on, and uh, I think many in your uh, uh, listener base will agree, young forests, these shrubby, brushy habitats that are really hard to walk through, they have a ton of wildlife, whether that be deer, turkey, grouse, a wide variety of species. Yep. Uh, and that was kind of my inspiration for becoming more involved with work exploring the impacts of forestry on birds. Cool. So as you correctly suspect yeah our listeners loyal you know regular listeners of the show will know that we've definitely have talked about this topic before we've interviewed folks from american bird conservancy rough grouse society and we try to try to mix a healthy dose of conservation conversations into this podcast i'm curious where's the funding or and not necessarily just a dollars and cents thing but who who's supporting your research and where is this push coming from because Again, as you correctly suspect, I think many people listening to this podcast will understand the importance of early successional forests, and sometimes we feel like we're banging our heads against the wall trying to explain that to other folks. So I'm trying to get a sense of where the push and the resources are coming from on your side, because I'm excited that you're doing this research. Yeah, so from a research perspective, my funding comes from a variety of sources, uh, a couple of major sources of, of my funding are the Natural Resource Conservation Service, which okay. is a branch of USDA, uh, and, and possibly one of the, well, certainly one of the, possibly number one most important uh, uh, private lands uh, management agencies in the eastern United States, probably the entire United States. In fact, uh, NRCS, their primary mission is helping people help the land. So working with private landowners uh, to better manage lands for wildlife. Uh, but I've also been funded through groups like uh, the National Fish and Wildlife Federation, uh, or excuse me, National Fish and Wildlife Foundation, uh, and uh, other non-government entities that hail to help wildlife species of conservation concern, uh, both game and non-game. So those are a couple important uh folks who have funded my work in the past, but just as important uh, to those who have funded my work uh, are those who fund uh, early successional habitat management and, and dynamic forest management and the things that uh, I study. And those are groups like NIFWIF, uh, the American Bird Conservancy, and uh, USDA, NRCS, just to name a few. Yeah. Uh, and, and I keep harping on NRCS because they're a very important group, uh, especially for your listeners who may have 
private forest lands they want to manage. Uh, I'm sure you've had folks on the, the podcast who've talked about that, but yep. USDA NRCS will help folks get enrolled in land management programs. Perhaps if they have land that's got timber, but it's not profitable to actually conduct a harvest to restore that to a younger uh, successional state so it can regenerate as a healthier forest, uh, NRCS can provide financial and and technical assistance to folks interested in that. So, yeah, it's kind of funny how you start as an objective scientist, and I remain an objective scientist, but as a conservation biologist, you also are advocating for the conservation uh, and protection of imperiled species. So I've become a huge fan of groups like the Bird Conservancy, who work very uh, lock and key with groups like NRCS and others to help folks uh, manage land for the benefit of wildlife and people together. Got it. Yeah, the NRCS is a great mention. We, we definitely have made some connections to it on the podcast in the past. I think actually it was just recently interviewing somebody from Kansas and we, we highlighted there as he was managing his family farm. I actually have, I've got a friend that is a new landowner in Wisconsin mm-hmm. and I recently connected him with one of the, some of the NRCS folks are they work for the conservation organizations like Pheasants Forever or Rough Grouse Society. And I know one, he's been on the podcast, Jared Elm, works for the Rough Grouse Society, funded by NRCS, as far as I understand. Connected him with the landowner, and they've got uh, they've got a date on the calendar mark. They're going to go out and snowshoe the property and look at possible management plans. So, very cool. That's fantastic. Yeah. Okay, I want to circle back to warblers for a minute. You mentioned being a bird watcher, and golden wing warblers, again, is something that... I'll be honest with you, DJ, I don't think I could point one out. If I saw one in in a tree, I don't think I could point one out. I know the name because I hear it, and it's so often talked about when I'm speaking to folks from Rough Grouse Society or Kevin Shepard from the American Bird Conservancy, early successional foresters, a big tie. Tell me about warblers. Tell me why they're such a coveted bird and what makes them special. (laughs) Yeah, so the thing that makes the golden-winged warbler in particular really nice to think about and talk about is it is a bird with relatively specific habitat needs. So there are birds like a chickadee that you would call a generalist. That means they can live in all different kinds of habitats. They're fine in your backyard uh, just as much as they're happy out in the middle of the woods. Even when it's 20 below, they're still here. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that's a great point. Other birds uh, that we might call a specialist, they are... uh, not nearly as abundant as the chickadee because while the chickadee is at home in the woods and in your backyard, something that is a specialist in the case of the golden warbler uh, is only going to be at home in a very particular place. And this particular bird, uh, they require heavily forested landscapes. But not only that, they require heavily forested landscapes with a early successional component to it. Uh, shrublands, uh, regenerating timber harvest, uh, recovering wildfire areas, uh, shrubby wetland, anything like that uh, is going to provide some nesting habitat for that bird. Now, the reason why so many folks are interested in the golden warbler in particular is, A, they're declining very rapidly, so it's currently being considered for listing on the Endangered Species Act. But perhaps uh, more to the point, this bird is highly specialized in its habitat, and it's serves as what we would call an umbrella species for a wider variety of birds. So that concept, the umbrella species, is is one that, uh, if you think of 
conserving one species, in this case the golden mink warbler, and conserving the habitat it requires, when you do that, it sort of serves as like an umbrella because when you when you do what the golden mink warbler needs, you're creating habitat for all of the other bird species and other animals uh, that that use the same habitat as that. So if you capture the needs of the golden wing warbler, you're generally capturing the needs of things like grouse, woodcock, yep. uh, and other non-game species, and even game species, uh, you know, nesting habitat for these birds, these early successional shrublands, et cetera. Those are great areas for uh, deer to fawn in. Those are great places for turkeys to nest and forage. Uh, they're just fantastic communities and serve an uh, important role in conserving a wide variety of wildlife. So to circle back to your question, uh, the Goldwing Warbler is being considered for listing uh, on the Endangered Species Act. So there's that reason why people are interested, but also because uh, the species pretty clearly serves as an umbrella species yeah. for a wide array of wildlife. So you conserve the Goldwing Warbler, you're conserving a lot of things. Got it. Definitely makes sense. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it would be fair to say, especially for you know, kind of tailoring to maybe a conversation you're having listeners on this podcast, you could say that a rough grouse is, w- would you say that a rough grouse is a specialist and a woodcock in, in a similar way in that they're very dependent on this habitat or does it not quite yeah. the same? Oh no, you're spot on. Okay. Uh, rough grouse is absolutely specialist. Uh, the golden winged warbler is a specialist. The woodcock is a specialist. And the reason why we frequently think of the golden winged warbler is it's like the specialist of all specialists. If you're hitting the needs of that bird, not only are you helping all the generalists, but you're helping all the, like, slightly less specialist specialists like sure, rough grouse sure. woodcock. Okay. Got it. And, and again, where I was going with that is if a bird hunter is having a conversation with somebody that's not a bird hunter, trying to understand the relationship there between rough grouse and woodcock and the warbler, because ultimately... It feels like to me, from what I see, partnerships are what make conservation possible and different agencies and groups aligning, aligning, you know, recognizing they have very similar interests and they can accomplish things together. That's a key piece of it. And sometimes that starts from conversations at the ground level. Absolutely. It, It all gets back to the same kind of idea that if you're managing a forest or, or an ecosystem in a way that at least in many regards, resembles the way that ecosystem functioned before humans were on the landscape, you're more than likely going to benefit uh, not only a species of interest, in the case of gold-winged warblers or, or grouse, you're going to benefit all the species that historically depended upon that ecosystem as well. Yeah. It doesn't matter whether you're a, a warbler or a grouse, a bumblebee, a monarch butterfly, if you're a species that was dependent upon young forests, managing that young forest, even if you've got grouse in mind, those other species will benefit. Yeah. Your research as a whole, I heard some mentions of public lands, private lands. Give me a sense of if there's a breakdown. Have you Do you primarily focus on private lands, public lands, healthy mix of both? How does that work? Yeah, we mostly work on private lands. Okay. So, a, a fair bit of my research takes place on public lands, uh, and the only reason for that is because public lands are readily accessible. It's, I try and do my monitoring work about 50-50, but at the end of the day, uh, in my mind, most of my work is being targeted toward informing private lands management. Sure. And the reason for that is because across the eastern United States, the vast majority of the land available for 
habitat conservation and wildlife management is private land. Uh, the story is a little different in the West, but here in the East, our landscapes are dominated by private land and our forests are mostly privately owned. Right. I'm familiar with that idea. And would you say that, you know, in general, public lands are public land managers are more closely connected to the education, the information, the research on proper management, whereas a private landowner could they could just own land and not have any idea about management. So that's that's where your focus ends up. Absolutely. Yeah. So not only are the opportunities uh, on private lands, but that's also where a lot of the need is. That's a great point. And that's not that's not to say that all public lands are managed perfectly. And that's also not to say that there aren't amazing private landowners out there managing their lands very well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, There just are many private landowners who who know they need more information, want more information, etc. And uh, uh, in many cases, historically, that information was hard to come by, yeah. uh, but work like we're doing on private lands, uh, working with NRCS, aims to not only make that technical assistance uh, more readily available, but also financial assistance, which which has historically uh, precluded a lot of healthy management on landscapes. Yeah. All right. I want to address something as it relates to early successional forest. And again, this is one of those things that as a rough grouse hunter and For many folks listening, we are somewhat very connected to that habitat type, early successional forest. We recognize the value. We recognize the importance because we have this desire to hunt birds and we know what healthy habitat, good habitat looks like for those birds. But what I want to know is, am I too close to it? How how important, how critical of an issue is early successional forest on the landscape at this point? Is that the biggest concern as it relates to forest and forest management, or does it? Where does it rank, DJ? Yeah, I would say that for many species, it ranks uh, among the highest concerns on the landscape. But that 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 importance varies a bit by species. I mean, there are a wide variety of threats facing our forests these days. Uh, the loss of of natural disturbance regimes like beaver and wildfire that historically created young forests yeah. is a major driver of landscape degradation and forest degradation today. But there is a ton of other factors. Uh, the increasing abundance of white-tailed deer populations in the eastern United States uh, and the subsequent uh, browsing impact is an increasing problem faced by many eastern forests. Uh, especially uh, in some cases when early successional management is done, uh, when deer populations become too abundant, uh, those deer can inhibit the regeneration of that young forest, which, of course, as you know, is critical for grouse, which like that uh, dense uh, woody regeneration. Uh, We've also got invasive species are an increasing problem in many places and in in some regions, uh, the fragmentation of forest. Uh, And that, that actually brings up an important thing to keep in mind, the term clearing is often used when uh, describing regenerating a forest through a timber harvest. Yeah. That's very, very much not clearing the forest. That is just regenerating the forest because you've turned a old forest into a young forest, but that still remains forest. Landscapes that are cleared, that's taking a forest and turning it into a parking lot. That is uh, another uh, form of threat that we see to uh, yeah. certain forests. Uh, so I would say that uh, the loss of disturbance regimes, such as fire and beaver that would have historically created young forests, uh, which we now mimic with timber management, 
the loss of those forces is one of the major drivers behind the declines of many species, especially the gold-winged warbler, American woodcock, and others. Uh, but it's certainly not the only thing threatening our forests. Now, I know that you've seen from the locations that you've done work in, you've obviously worked in the Upper Great Lakes, you've worked in the Southern Appalachians and a whole bunch of other places. Could you compare and contrast a little bit early successional forests in those two parts of the world and talk about the challenges, I think, of developing early successional forests, as I suspect it's harder and more challenging. You mentioned the deer. That's an interesting one that I've become more familiar with. But you got different species types, things that don't sprout out of the ground like an aspen stand does here in Minnesota. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, that I mean, that's a great point. So we, we face a lot of challenges here in the Appalachian Mountains that you don't face in the Great Lakes yeah. uh, or don't face nearly as much. Sure. So a lot of the uh, regenerating forest that we have in the central Appalachians is actually not at all dominated by uh, aspen, as it frequently is in the Great Lakes. Uh, a lot of our forest here is dominated by oak, hickory, and other relatively slow-growing hardwood species. So there are a lot of other considerations that have to uh, go in my Go in mind when we're thinking of implementing habitat management in the form of timber harvest here. So in the in the Great Lakes, if you're managing aspen, uh, you can cut down those trees and have regeneration uh, almost a given. So those aspen stems regenerate robustly. They regenerate very quickly uh, because they're growing directly from root stock of, of the trees that were harvested. But oak frequently doesn't behave like that. Uh, it's not at all uncommon for oak to regenerate from what we call a stump sprout. Uh, but in many cases, we need to have adequate understory regeneration of those young oaks before the canopy is actually taken off of the timber harvest. So as a result of that, what frequently happens here in the Appalachians is we'll do a two or sometimes three-stage cut on a forest. Uh, those sort of introductory cuts, that remove a few trees, but but not all of them, uh, those generally fall under the class of what's called a shelterwood harvest. Yep. And out here, uh, we'll often do a shelterwood harvest, which will remove a small percentage of the trees. So your forest is still mostly full canopy, but there are little gaps in it now from some of the uh, maybe uh, uh, subdominant trees removed. Uh, that allows enough light percolation in from the canopy to allow some oak regeneration to start. And we might leave a stand like that for a decade or more. Interesting. To allow the understory to regenerate. So that is the stage at which, after you've got that regeneration that has advanced beyond the height at which deer can browse it, that might be when we implement the final overstory removal. Whereas in an acid stand, uh, you can chop all those guys down and have pretty robust regeneration even in the face of relatively heavy deer browse sometimes. Yeah. So I guess before I do want to I do want to talk about upland bird hunting and, and bird dogs and we're gonna transition a little bit, but I don't want to I don't want to leave this without sort of giving you a chance to uh, if there's anything really important with your work that you think we missed feel free to address that now. But knowing that that we've got an audience full of upland bird hunters that I think do have a desire to understand the ecosystem and the landscape and the habitat where these birds live, is there something like what is the most important thing you think we should be aware of and or possibly do if we're really committed to the future of this habitat? Yeah, I, I would say <clears throat> as far as things to be aware of, 
is a pretty simple message in some regards, and that is the science is increasingly clear that for a wide variety of wildlife species, whether it is a golden-winged warbler that migrates to Venezuela every year that most folks would never know (laughs) how to identify or even care, uh, or whether that is uh, the grouse that you hunt all winter long, landscapes with diverse forests benefit them all, at least for forest-dependent wildlife. It doesn't matter if you're a salamander, if you're a a slug, if you are a rough grouse, if you're a black bear. These wildlife uh, evolved in landscapes that were dynamic. These are landscapes that had forest fire, landscapes that had extensive beavers, which made extensive meadows and networks of meadows. These animals evolved in landscapes with disturbance. And there are things that they didn't evolve to handle, like they didn't evolve to handle invasive species. Uh, They didn't evolve to handle uh, extensive fragmentation, Uh, but they did evolve in disturbed landscapes. And landscapes with natural disturbance or ecologically sound disturbance, like timber management that is meant to mimic historical disturbances, those landscapes uh, support robust populations of wildlife across the board, at least for forest wildlife. Yeah. So I guess that's, that's probably the most important thing to keep in mind. Now, as far as things to do, uh, folks who are, are forest landowners uh, engaging in land management with groups like the NRCS to conduct ecologically sound habitat management is one of the best ways to benefit forest wildlife. And the thing is that that you need to be careful of if you're a a landowner is to actually work with folks who are uh, specialized in sound forestry and sound land management. This is why we like working with NRCS, because these folks are actual experts at managing the land for wildlife. Folks like Kevin, uh, who know how to manage shrubland or a, an aspen stand or whatever, uh, so that it not only benefits the wildlife population, but also benefits the landowners. Yeah. And the reason I harp on this is because it's very easy to just find a logger to cut down trees. In fact, what many uh, unscrupulous loggers uh, might do is convince the landowner to cut down some trees, maybe just take a few of the big ones and leave the rest, Uh, and convince the landowners that that's actually what the forest needs. But in many cases, taking the big ones, which are worth the most money, and just uh, leaving behind the small ones, they call it taking the best and leaving the rest, that's very damaging to that forest. Because now, not only do you not have a regenerating stand because your canopy is still in that forest, but you've now taken the biggest, healthiest trees and left behind the weak, scraggly guys that are all bent in weird shapes, uh, that is the opposite of what you want to do with that forest. It's frequently known as high grading, and that can damage a forest for generations. So it's very important to work with professionals in forestry and wildlife management rather than just going with a logger and, and having them kind of take trees that they think will be monetarily beneficial. That's not to say uh, management for grouse and golden-winged warblers and whatever else can't be uh, commercially viable. Right. Many timber stands out here, we have, the, we have oak, you guys have a lot of aspen. Many of those stands can absolutely turn profit if that's a healthy forest. But it's important that it's done carefully and in an ecologically sound manner. So I would say working with land management agencies uh, and folks like the American Bird Conservancy to, to get habitat management on the ground is one of the most important things if folks have land. 
if folks don't have land, uh, I would say advocacy and spreading the, the message is probably one of the most important things. Um, some of uh, the sites where I've worked with on public land uh, are actively advocated against, uh, uh, where I'll go out and survey for birds and see people protesting habitat management being implemented because they have this misconception that cutting down trees is bad for the forest. And it's, I mean, it's kind of intuitive in some ways, if you think about it. Uh, cutting down trees kind of feels wrong. <laughs> but the thing is, by cutting down trees, we are emulating a historical disturbance force. So I guess I would say if folks don't have land, learning about early successional habitat and how early successional habitat was historically made and the value of young forests is probably one of the best things uh, that those folks can do. Go out and hunt in that young forest and tell folks, uh, your hunting buddies, how many grouse you're finding in these sites, how many woodcocks you're finding in these places, and really just spread the message of the value of early successional forests to wildlife species like grouse, woodcock, and warblers uh, that depend on these places. So if you've got land, consider managing it. Um, and if you don't have land, spend time in these managed landscapes and learn about them and spread the message. That is very well put, DJ. I, I do think that we are a little bit preaching to the choir here with our audience, but <laughs> but I will say I will say that I do I get a lot of emails from folks that are just getting into bird hunting, getting back into bird hunting, and they maybe don't understand all this stuff. It maybe not might not be old hat information to them. So yep. the quicker and the more deeply the listeners of the podcast and and bird hunters gain this, you know, respect and appreciation for these landscapes. Um, we're all better for that. And, and we're all, we're all advocates and we're all ambassadors for this habitat. So yeah, that's, that's very well put. One thing I did want to ask you about was you mentioned exotic species or invasive species. And that's yep. one that I, I mean, I'm sure we could, you could have a completely separate podcast about it, but it's <laughs> when I'm walking in the woods and I've, I've gotten to know buckthorn. Do you have buckthorn out East? Uh, not, not nearly as bad as you have. Okay. We have it here, but yeah. not like I have it back in Michigan. <laughs> yeah, I've got it in my, my backyard and I'm, I'm, I've started to wage war against it now because I didn't, I didn't know what it was for a couple of years when we first bought our house. And now I know, and now I see it all over the place and I see it in some of the green spaces here around town. But I also have started to see it in some of the, wild places that i'm out bird hunting and when i see it out yep. there i just it feels so helpless like what what could you ever do to stop the spread of something like buckthorn yeah and i mean it, and it's possible to slow and stop the spread of, of plants like buckthorn but yeah. what, since we're talking about buckthorn managing buckthorn is expensive yeah. and really difficult and requires cutting cutting large woody stems basically small trees or saplings uh, and applying herbicides to those most of the time, that's one by one. That yep. is a, a painstaking endeavor. <laughs> the the best way to manage these invasive species, or, or maybe a better way of saying that, is a better way to manage uh, species invasion is to prevent them in the first place. Yeah. So that is something we struggle with out here. Uh, we have a, a slightly different suite of species we're concerned with that are certainly present in the Great Lakes, but different forces make them kind of take hold here. We have huge problems with uh, uh, barberry and, and uh, as well as species that are very common out where you're at. Multiflora rose, autumn olive, all these things that are uh, uh, really take over early successional habitats, actually. Uh, we have 
problems with uh, uh, there's an invasive species of uh, Aurelia out here. We have Tree of Heaven is another nasty invasive. It's actually a small tree. Um, so yeah, uh, keeping these invasive species out of sight, uh, another one, Japanese stoatgrass is really nasty. It's one of the most important uh, factors that really predicts forest health uh, in general. We have also problems, of course, in many other early successional habitats that aren't strictly forest-based, uh, like shrublands uh, here in the, uh, the Northeast uh, and in many parts of the Great Lakes. I'm not sure if it's quite where you're at, though it may be. Uh, Phragmites, uh, here in central Pennsylvania, uh, we have a small number of wetlands. Uh, there are more of them in the Northeast uh, that support tons of woodcock, tons of golden-winged warblers. And these birds that rely upon early successional habitats are are flourishing in beaver meadows. But when uh, uh, Phragmites, for instance, uh, takes over, it is so expensive to control. It, it's almost not even worth it at that point. That landscape is almost completely destroyed because a lot of these, these invasive plants do not provide habitat for birds or any animals, really. Yeah. Uh, or, or worse, they provide habitat uh, and maybe even, say, uh, uh, berries, food sources, things like that. But they're what we call an ecological trap in many cases where, say, honeysuckle, for instance, a lot of birds just love to eat those honeysuckle berries, but they're so low in nutrition that the birds are, are filling their stomachs with completely useless fruit. So, yeah, invasive species are a serious threat to many forests and uh, forest management in many cases. So it's, it's a big problem. Yeah. Yeah, I think, and since I brought up buckthorn, I, I think that's a similar similar thing. They, they have berries, and I know birds eat them because that's how they spread, but I think they pretty yep. much just kind of go right through the birds, really. I don't know that they're a high-value nutrition source. Yeah, I believe that's true. The other thing about buckthorn is you can look at it, and it can provide sort of that structural density like it can it can be really dense cover and i've seen yep. i've seen it in aspen stands they're actually uh, some of the least favorite places to go into when you're hunting but <laughs> and and again i i don't i mean i guess the a grouse and woodcock could use that structural diversity i've seen birds in that kind of cover but sure. just the way that the way that buckthorn spreads and begins to outcompete the native species it's uh it's not a great thing i i think that's the key here because even if birds, let's say grouse or, or what have you, are going to feed on those berries, let's say. Let's say there's some habitat value. Yeah. In fact, many uh, exotic species do have some habitat value. Right. Guatemala, for instance, was deliberately introduced as a wildlife species. But the, the fact is, wildlife populations flourish in diverse landscapes. And when you have invasive species that outcompete everything else, that is an event that is a, a phenomena that uh, works against diverse landscapes, that makes the landscape from a diverse place with lots of different shrubs and lots of different species of saplings to a homogenous place that's nothing but buckthorn. Yeah. And even if there is some wildlife value to that species, the fact that it is uh, anti-forest diversity uh, is, is really the problem. Yeah, that's the that's the takeaway there. So well put again, DJ. <laughs> well, let's transition a little bit. I want to talk bird hunting, and we'll attempt to segue because you mentioned being a hunter, fisherman, trapper at a young yep. age. Where did upland bird hunting enter your life? And I'm curious if it had anything to do with your work. Yeah, it actually had a lot to do with my work. So <laughs> growing up in, in southwestern Michigan, we didn't have a ton of game birds at our disposal. Uh, I grew up hunting crows, uh, turkeys, 
things like that from an avian perspective, obviously did a lot of deer hunting, yep. uh, a lot of waterfowl hunting, things like that. I did a little bit of everything really growing up. But the only game bird uh, or upland game bird, other than occasional introduced pheasants, things like that, the only game bird we really had a lot of access to were woodcock. And I just hadn't gotten into it as a young kid. I, I went out woodcocking, woodcock hunting a few times, but was never super successful. So I mostly gravitated towards rabbits and crows and squirrels and deer and things like that. But as I got older and moved out east, I learned about the value of early successional habitat and forest management to these upland game birds, especially grouse and woodcock. And that's kind of what uh, pushed me towards uh, upland game bird hunting. Cool. And talk to me about bird dogs, because I now know that you are the proud owner of at least one bird dog. Tell me about the dog and, <laughs> and how that came into your life. Yeah, so as I've become more and more interested in uh, uh, upping my game bird game, if you will, <laughs> I've come to realize, and you, you know, you can hunt game birds without a dog, yep. uh, but there's something about having a dog that just seems to really enhance the experience. So I, I, I grew up hunting with, with, you might say, bird dogs. Uh, we didn't hunt birds with them, uh, but my buddies and I, we had Britneys and, and beagles, and we would just kind of turn them loose while we were hunting and any rabbit or squirrel that crossed our paths uh, became our quarry. Sure. But as I've become more interested in actual game birds, I've realized that having a nice pointer or a flusher or what have you is really what you want for, for hunting things like woodcock. So I took the plunge uh, last January and got a little English setter from a friend in Ohio. Uh, Coincidentally, that was right before uh, the coronavirus uh, came to, uh, and that coincidentally gave us plenty of opportunities to, to train this little English setter. Yeah. Uh, we've got her pretty good. Uh, she, she goes on point pretty readily. She's now uh, a little over a year old. Uh, she does really well. So we're, we're still, uh, maybe, maybe everyone says this, <laughs> but we're still... Uh, calling her a work in progress, but she is definitely getting to the point where uh, she's she's finding birds for us to hunt. Uh, as she's she needs to work on her focus a little bit, but I, I blame myself for that. So yeah, yeah I, I would say as, as weird as it seems, the COVID nineteen uh, pandemic has really uh, improved my ability to train this little English setter. And uh, actually, we've we've kind of been in uh, touch with our breeder friend in uh, Ohio. And they're mentioning that uh, possibly in 2022 breeding their dog again, and we might have to get her a sister. We'll see. I like it. That's awesome. Well, yeah, you're certainly not alone in, in a lot of folks giving some extra attention, I think, to the dogs over the last year. But you will. There, there's a parallel there in that you do research and scientific research. You're you're a continual learner, right? And I'll I'll tell you that having bird dogs it, and bird hunting, really for that matter, it's a it's a continual learning process and evolution. So, if you still feel like it's a work in progress, that's a good thing. You want to you always want to be moving forward and <laughs> making progress. You don't have all the answers, and neither do I, and neither does anybody listening. Yeah, and you know, I'll, I'll just say I'm sure every guest gone here says this, but I just got to say it as well. You know, the, the really great thing about having a bird dog is, you know, I've been a hunter all my life, and you can go out and have a nice walk in the woods, but it's definitely more fun if you come home with uh, some, some dead grouse. But if you're out hunting with a dog, even if you come home empty-handed, there's something really special about watching that dog work the field that you don't feel quite so bad if you come home empty-handed. 
You're definitely not the first person to say that, and I am. Uh, I'm nodding my head in agreement because I think, yeah, anybody that hunts <laughs> with bird dogs knows that feeling. It's they they add something that is hard to describe at times, and they they add an element to the hunt that <laughs> makes it uh, makes it that much more special. But talk to me about so you're a, you know roughly a year into your first bird dog. What were the mo- what were some of the moments? Any any big fears? What were you most worried about? What were you most concerned about? Was it getting the dog on birds, certain training things? What were the challenges? You know, honestly, some of the, the scariest things for me as a first-time bird dog owner are when you go out to that game lands or that state forest, and you know how that, that young pup behaves, and you cut them loose for the first time, and they take <laughs> off around the corner, and you're like, oh, my God, where did that dog go? Yeah. That is definitely the scariest part of it is, is working on recall. And I have to confess, the e-collar is definitely helpful in that. Uh, even if you're not using it much, it gives you that sense of security to know, hey, if, if my dog uh, decides to take off, I can I can bring her back if I need to. Yep. Um, or you have this problem just like we do. If my dog bumps into a porcupine, uh, it doesn't feel like coming back. I can bring her back. <laughs> yep. And out here, uh, if you're out doing any training in the warm season, and, and this would probably make you somewhat thankful for your minus 20 degree weather, out here we're in rattlesnake country. Oof. Now, not usually yeah. during the hunting season, but if you're out in the warm weather doing a little bit of uh, uh, summer dog training, you have to be careful of where you go because you don't want that dog to bump into a rattler. So I would say that was probably my biggest fear at first was is becoming comfortable running my dog off leash and, yeah. and working with the dog on recall. But after that, I, I mean, maybe I was just uh, extra paranoid when I first got started, but after I felt comfortable that I could recall my dog, yeah, the rest of it has come relatively naturally and, and mostly just come with time in the field and experience. Yeah. That's a, that's a trust thing. You're, you're developing your relationship with that dog and you, over time you'll have, you know, you'll have so much trust in the dog that you just know that the dog is going to come back if that's the way that the dog is. And I think a lot of the dogs that we hunt with end up being that way, but I actually can, I can very much recall the first time it was the first season I had my first dog. So this was seven years ago and Hartley, he was a pup and we were mid season. And up until that point, he was a very much a puppy in that he was never very far away. I had a little bell on him, no e-collar, no GPS. He was just too young for any of that. And I remember yep. the first time he ran off, was a little bit more bold and confident, and he ran off and he was out of bell range for a minute <laughs> or two. And I remember standing there yep. thinking to myself, you know, my stomach dropped because, again, first bird dog, I had no idea what to do. And I, I think I just stood there, which is probably the right thing to do. And eventually he made his way back. And, you know, now seven years, seven years later, I, you know, it's a, it's a completely an afterthought because you just have so much trust in the dogs. And and this year I went through a similar thing. I'll tell you, I will, I would highly recommend if, if you're considering it or thinking about it, investing in a GPS caller, because the peace of mind, yeah, yeah the peace of mind that that can provide is very high. And I had a little bit different experience with my puppy this season. Same, another English setter. Listeners have heard have heard some about her, but 
as she developed this fall and she started to get her confidence underneath her, she had a little phase where it was it was about a month of the season where she was so bold and so confident that she was taking off and just going. I mean, she was 400, 500 yards away from me. I think one time it was either 650 or 750 yards away from me in the woods. And I had the GPS call around. So I was able to maintain some level of sanity, but had I not had that <laughs> GPS call around, I mean, this was, you know, 10, 15, 20 minutes of her being gone and being able to yep. look down and watch that GPS to see that she was getting closer to me, that helped. But boy, <laughs> they can, they can definitely <laughs> stress you out. Yeah. You know, it's, it's sort of funny because you want a dog that's got that high prey drive, right? But my dog, uh, Maple, she, she, and she has that prey drive. The problem is she, when she was young and she's kind of grown out of this. So I, and again, my first dog, so I don't know, uh, how often they grow out of this. It seems like they mostly do, but she has that high prey drive. So she'd be running through the state game lands and she'd bump into a chickadee and she'd chase that for, you know, yep. about 10 yards and then fly away. And then she'd find a sparrow and chase that. And then just, hop from bird to bird to bird to bird chasing all these little songbirds through the woods until she was gone so yeah she's grown out of it for the most part she doesn't seem to chase the robins and the chickadees anymore but uh at first that was the most exciting thing in the world for that puppy <laughs> yeah and that that is fun to see i mean that that just pure genetic instinctual prey drive that is channeled in through that puppy you know and they're chasing everything that they see and eventually yeah they figure out <laughs> hey grouse and woodcock are pretty fun because the guy i'm with yeah. you know takes a shot at him and that's that's always fun i will compliment you on the name selection of your puppy maple i when i got my first dog seven years ago i was on the list deposit list for a female and my wife and i had picked out the name maple we were going to name it maple and i remember we even had a call oh, tag wow. and we ended up getting a male dog so we changed the name hartley this time around we got a female dog and we were really debating on naming her maple but we ended up going with rose instead but i like that name oh wow <laughs> yeah i honestly i mean uh, you know as a guy who works in forests I had to have a, a at least a plant name of some sort, sure. so yep. we were kind of torn between maple and aspen. <laughs> yeah, well, a lot of a lot of grouse dogs have been named aspen. That's for sure. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> yep. So, so, how was the? Uh, let's get more specific. Do you have a a memory of moment of recalling maple getting into her first wild bird? Did it happen this year? And do you recall it? Yeah. Well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I do. Uh, so she's obviously still learning. Uh, yep. her, the first time she got into a grouse, uh, I'll give you the, the most embarrassing one, was uh, <laughs> she, she and I were kind of moving together. She was sniffing around it, and we both flushed a woodcock, but she was so excited about just all the smells and everything. She didn't even see it. It flushed right in front of us. Sure. And then this, this dog sniffs around. I think she kind of got on the scent of this bird uh, and continued sniffing toward it flushed it a second time and both times never even noticed that bird she never even saw it <laughs> so i'd say that was the, the first uh bird she ever encountered i'll never forget because it was just it was embarrassing on both of our accounts <laughs> but uh mo we have grouse around here in state college but woodcock are a lot more abundant yeah. so uh she has gotten better uh over the past uh uh six months or so we haven't had the opportunity to practice in the short term since our woodcock are gone and grouse are pretty low numbers. But in the fall, she was pointing woodcock uh, reasonably well. Cool. Uh, still needs to work on uh, uh, pointing them uh, before she gets too close. Some of our woodcock here will flush pretty early. 
So we're having a little bit of trouble uh, with that at first, but by the end she was getting a lot better with, uh, with actually getting on point with those birds uh, without getting too close. So her first one was a, a rocky start, but she got better pretty quickly. Yeah, nothing out of the ordinary there. That's, you know, more and more bird contacts will, she'll continue to improve, but she's on the right track and she's showing you what she was born to do. That's for sure. Yeah, it's, it's amazing when you see them go on point for the first time because it's like, I never taught you that. Where'd that come from? Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's very cool. Did you, were you limited to hunting in Pennsylvania? Did you happen to make any out of state trips or do anything like that this fall? Yeah, COVID is really yeah. kind of stifled some of that. We've, we've, Mostly, well, we strictly hunted in Pennsylvania this year. Uh, I took a brief uh, uh, trip to Michigan for for deer hunting, but uh, had to leave Maple behind for that one. Uh, so, but we're hoping to uh, to bring her out to Minnesota and uh, have uh, Kevin put us on some grouse. So that's that's coming soon. That would be awesome. Yeah, if you uh, if you head this way, I would love to to meet up with you and Shep in the woods. Shep, uh, he Absolutely. could he could he could teach you a lot. That guy's been he's been grouse hunting for a long time. And- <laughs> He's uh he's one of the better ones out there. I haven't I have yet to been able to hunt with Shep. I've I've run dogs with him a little bit out at Pine Ridge Grouse Camp, and I've spent enough time around him. He yep. interviewed him on the podcast, but yeah, hunting with him would be a blast. Absolutely. Anything anything else on your radar for hunts that you want to do or things that you're looking forward to with the pup this year? You know, at this point, I just want to get my dog on every single game bird I possibly can. Sure. Uh, Kind of growing up and, and actually being a biologist, I've had sort of mixed feelings about rough grouse. Or excuse me, I've never had <laughs> mixed feelings <laughs> about rough grouse. Mixed feelings about ringneck pheasants uh, because okay. they're not native, of course. Sure, I yeah. love the pheasants forever. They do excellent work, uh, but the pheasants themselves, I've always just been like, I've struggled with seeing the appeal. However. Now that I have a bird dog, it's much clearer to me uh, why pheasants are so fun and exciting. So there are a number of places where pheasants are stocked around here. I I have to confess, I would love to get her on pheasants. And we've actually taken her out a few times, but there's just so many bird dogs on so few pheasants that uh, we weren't able to get on any pheasants. But I'd like to get her on pheasants. I'd like to get her on more grass than she's been on. Uh, really just seeing what the limits are for this dog and then myself for game bird hunting as a pair. It's, it's, a, it's a new experience for me as, as largely growing up, either having relatively poorly trained hunting dogs uh, or being the dog myself. <laughs> having a dog that's actually had a, a fair bit of uh, thought put into its training as with Maple uh, is a new experience. So I think just getting on uh, the, the biggest variety of different birds and uh, trying to master those uh, those hunts and working as a team. Yeah. Well, I can hear the excitement and the enthusiasm in the way that you describe it, and I'm uh, it makes me smile. You just keep on going, man. There's, there's a lot to experience with you and your bird dog, and I'm happy and I'm excited for you. Well, thank you very much. Well, DJ, I, I want to tell you that I really appreciate you coming on to the podcast. I, I think we covered some excellent stuff. Appreciate all the conversation around forestry and habitat and timber management. And of course, sharing some fun stories about bird dogs at the end never hurts. It was a blast. I appreciate your time today and thank you very much. If folks are interested in your research or would like more information on any of the things that we covered, would you have a, a website or something to point people to, to, to get more information? Um, yes. I have a website, uh, it's darrenjmcneil.weebly.com, where a lot of my research uh, is discussed in more detail, and all of my research papers are freely available there. 
and that's spelled D-A-R-I-N-J-M-C-N-E-I-L dot Weebly dot com. And I have all of my papers and, and project updates and lots of cool pictures uh, and everything uh, posted on there. Of course, I'm happy to chat more over email with anyone who's interested, um, uh, which is also uh, my email is listed on my website. Yeah, and otherwise, it's been great chatting with you as well. Uh, I'll look forward to uh, a trip out to Minnesota and uh, hunting with some uh, some bird dogs in some recently harvested uh, Aston stands. <laughs> Perfect, DJ. Awesome. I will throw a link to that website in the show notes, and folks can look that up and get in touch with you if they need be. And uh, we'll keep in touch. If you head this way, let me know, and I'm sure I'll hear from Shep as well. Okay. I'll talk to you later. All right. See you, DJ. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to the Project Upland Podcast. That does it for this episode of the show. A quick reminder that the Project Upland Podcast is brought to you by Onyx Hunt, Yukonuba Sporting Dog, CZ USA, Garmin, Sage and Breaker, and Dakota 283. If you enjoy the show, please leave us a rating and a review and subscribe or follow the show in your podcast app. Thanks again for listening, everybody. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Project Upland Podcast. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.